Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and show us what you would want us to see through all this, and let your spirit lead, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 11. The writer here is talking about the sacrifices, uh, talking about uh, how Jesus was the best sacrifice, the fulfillment of the sacrifices. So chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore of the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us, for after that he'd said, This is the covenant that I will make unto them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and in their mind, and I will write them, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of, of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we're going to stop there just to go through this. So he's coming out and he says the priests in the tabernacle and the temple every day offered the same sacrifices, including sacrifices for themselves. And many times it was the same sacrifice over and over and over again, such as on Passover. They would, kill the, they would spend the entire day killing Passover lambs, one for every family. So that's all they did was kill, kill lambs for Passover all day long. When it comes to Yom Kippur, kill, the, kill the, the, the offerings all day long for the sin offerings. And what he's saying is it was obvious because the same offering was being offered so many times for the same people year by year that the offerings were not enough. It was not the offering that forgave the sins and the whole point here is it's looking to the offering that they pointed toward, Jesus Christ, who gets into that section where he says, Jesus offered his blood and sat down. He's not up there in heaven offering his blood over and over and over and over again on the altar of God. He did it once and for all, and now he's sitting, waiting for the end of, end of time to be processed. And this is his... This is his uh, statement that he's making here he goes um, they offered sometimes oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin so all these offerings all the way back to Adam and Eve when God killed the first animal to make coats for them it did not take away their sin it pointed to the offering that would eventually be made to take away sin so that offerings were no longer needed. And this is where we're at. Since Jesus died, we do not need to have sacrifices pointing to the death of Jesus because he is now dead or, and then raised again. But he shed his blood 
put it on the altar, and now he just sits and waits for the end of the time when the last person finally accepts that sacrifice and the world is judged. Then we go through the millennial kingdom and the white throne judgment sends everybody to their final destination for eternity. And all of that that's coming forward to us. And he says, but this man, speaking of Jesus, the high priest, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus' position in heaven is at the right hand of the Father, just sitting there, you know, waiting for, waiting for everything to be done. Now, heaven's time was a lot different than our time. You know, it, it's, it's more timeless than, than what we are used to. But we do know that heaven has a form of time because the tree of life produces fruit in its seasons. So there is some form of time, but not as we know it. And we don't know what that means. We have no idea. We know that we will live for eternity, which just the statement of living for eternity is a statement of time. Because how do you measure eternity if there's no time? Now, what that means, we don't know. We will be without sin, so there will be no death. So even if we were inside time, it would still be irrelevant because we would be living for eternity. So it doesn't really matter, but Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is a very important statement from a Jewish perspective, and even from our perspective. If we have, are running a business, oftentimes we'll say, this is my right hand person. You know, this is the assistant manager, or you know, maybe not even have a title. But if you, if you want something done and I'm not available, this is the person you go to. When they speak, Basically, I'm speaking is usually, usually what's true and somebody is your right hand. They're, you know, they, they say something, you listen because when they speak, for all practical purposes, I'm speaking. I fully trust them to do things my way. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The right hand means the, approve, the side of approval. And you know, so Jesus is sitting there. He's got the Father saying, I've approved of him. He's sitting right there. When he speaks, I'm speaking. When I speak, he speaks. Uh, and he's sitting there at his right hand, waiting. As it says, waiting for, with expectation. He's looking forward to the day that his enemies are made his footstool. Now, this is kind of a harsh type of sound. Uh, I'm just waiting. My enemy is going to be my footstool. They're going to be sitting at the foot of the, of the chair, and I'm just going to put my feet up on them. Or, as was brought out so many times in the Old Testament, when somebody was captured, you had them lay down and you put their, your foot on their neck. You didn't stand on their neck because that would kill them, but you put, put your foot on their neck, showing that they were in subjection to you. And this is the statement. He's waiting for that day when all, and I would say supposed enemies, because Jesus has no enemies. You know, he can just, uh, you know, Think him out of existence. He really has no enemy. But he says, when everybody is under subjection, when Satan is put at the, at the white throne judgment and forced to bow down and confess, Jesus is Lord. That is going to be hard for him because he's been fighting that for 6,000 years. By that time, 7,000 years. 
He's been fighting against Jesus being Lord, against God being the sovereign. And he will be forced to bow and say, you are Lord. All the human beings that don't want to acknowledge God is Lord will have to bow and confess he is Lord at the white throne judgment. Jesus is waiting for that day. Even the ones that aren't saved. Yeah. All the ones that aren't saved it will include. We will say it gladly. We're not going to be forced to say it. You know, we'll be at the Bema scene, oh, Lord, thank you, we're with you, and, you know, we're your bride, and we'll be happy to be saying it because we're saying it on earth. The lost, I've met many people who said, I will not bow to God. There is no way I'm going to bow to God. You know, and they are just vehement, and that's the way Satan is. I am not going to bow to him. I'm, I'm going to win somehow. And at the white throne judgment, all will bow. There may be two angels on the side of everybody making them bow and making them speak, but they will say the words before they're cast into the lake of fire. And this is what Jesus is waiting for, the day that all bow down and recognize who he is and his enemies are in subjection to him as they step into hell. And this is something that is hard for us, some people to believe because, you know, we get this picture of Jesus, the, the meek and mild uh, lamb, the lamb of God that died on the cross, who didn't call the ten legions of angels to rescue him, did not, did not speak a word to destroy the Romans that were putting him on the cross, did not speak a word to, to get rid of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. But there will come a point in time when the lamb becomes the lion. And once that happens, then look out the enemy. He is not the meek and mild lamb that came for the slaughter. He is the almighty God who's going to come back as Satan draws the armies against him when he comes back to Mount Olivet the first time and he just speaks a word and they're, and they're destroyed and Satan is cast into, the, in, into the hell for a thousand years and and everybody else, and, and the demons are all cast into hell for a thousand years, and then Satan is released at the end of the thousand years to have one last hurrah, which Jesus just then ends that battle by just speaking and ends the battle. Now, and this is the thing we have to understand. Satan is not God's equal. God just uses him. He gives him a long leash and lets him do a lot of stuff, but he's a created being. At any moment, God could unthink anybody. We're, we're here by his thought. We're here by his pleasure. We're here because he allows it. The very atoms in our cell are held together by the concentration of God and the power of God. And when we get to the end of the millennial kingdom and everything just dissolves in fire, I really just believe that that's when God says, okay, I'm going to let the atoms do what the atoms want to do in the first place. And that's explode. I, I love school when they go, why does an atom hold together? How do all those protons, it's nuclear force. What is nuclear force? We have no idea. Then I read in the Bible that everything is held together by God. I'm going, well, I think I found your nuclear force. Uh, scientists, I think I found the nuclear force. It's right here in the Bible. The Bible says that all things are held together by God. Literally. It says it. And people didn't really believe it in the past, but you know, we know that everything is held together by something, and we don't know what it is. And we go, God is holding together the very atoms. 
the very atoms do not collapse. The electrons do not collapse into the protons and keep spinning because God holds them in. And and all that pile of protons that should be exploding apart are held together in God's hand and by his word they're held together. Because he designed it that way. And he created it in such a way that man can't understand it. And even when I was in high school, I asked that question, and none of my instructors ever had an answer. And I've asked my very smart cousin, who's a doctor in physics, why, and he goes, just nuclear force. I go, what is that? He goes, we don't know. Okay, uh, very good. You know, you're, you're, you're a doctor of science, and you don't know, so okay, we'll go for that. But all of this is Jesus is sitting there waiting for everything to happen, for the enemies to be finished, for God to be done using Satan, for Satan to be cast into hell or lake of fire, and for the eternity with human beings in our perfect bodies to start. He's just up there waiting patiently. And, you know, it's kind of hard for us to picture, but that's what he's doing. Just waiting, waiting for everything for the end of time to happen. End of time as we know time. <laughs> the end of the fourth, fourth dimension of time. <laughs> he says, just waiting for that to end. Once it's gone, we'll, we'll, start, we'll start the real life. And, you know, this is the problem for us as humans. We are stuck in this world trying to figure out how to live when we have a spiritual component that barely lives and barely is understood which is our real life that we don't even recognize because we're stuck in these fleshly bodies that don't really work very well in the spiritual world, depending on how much we trust God. And really hoping, because I've been studying chapter 11, the faith chapter, I was looking forward to because it starts out, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the real power of who we are. It is the real power of our real life and yet we so often do not understand it because of being stuck in the flesh. And the flesh is fallen. And the more we get stuck in the flesh and the more we get stuck in the fallen nature, the less we have access to the real power of the spiritual world. And this is something that is hard for us to do and we have to have our flesh crucified so that we can live in Christ in faith and be able to really touch the spiritual world and all the power and authority that comes with that as the king's kids, the king's children, the king's bride, the prince's bride, the prince is bride. <laughs> uh, not the princess, but the prince is. <laughs> uh, and Jesus is waiting. He's waiting for that day when it's time to call his bride to his side. And this is the beauty, because this is the picture of a Jewish wedding. They would be engaged, which was virtually a, we would call it almost married. It was, you had to actually get divorced once you were engaged. The, the husband, the groom, would go out and he'd build the house. He'd get his business started. He would make sure that he was ready for his bride. The bride stayed at her father's house until the bridegroom was ready for her. Then he would arrange with his father to kidnap his wife one night, and they would have a week-long celebration for a marriage. 
at the end of which it was consummated and they would then start their life together as husband and wife. This is the thing that we are looking forward to. This is why it is something that we are looking forward. Jesus is the husband. The church is the bride. There's coming a day when Jesus will come and take his bride from this world and said, now is a time for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will celebrate with him. For seven years, while the world goes through pure hell on earth, or as close to hell as earth is ever going to see, with Satan ruling, and we will be taken away. While the world is going through trials and tribulations and hardship, we will be at a great big feast, a week-long feast of heaven's time for seven years on earth, celebrating the marriage, and come back for the honeymoon to rule this world for a thousand years of almost perfection. The sin nature will still be on those who are left behind, but it'll be long life, the animals living the way they're supposed to. I would imagine the weather will be back the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> you know, no more storms and all that. You know, and still, even with living in perfection, man will rebel against God. And that'll be the last big thing because what's the last lie of Satan? You know, if you just had a perfect environment, you all, you all would have no problems. Adam and Eve had a perfect environment and they had problems. For a thousand years, man will have, for all practical purposes, a perfect environment, utopia, Jesus reigning, the perfect government, the perfect conditions, animals that aren't killing you, life, you know, whether that's not killing you, and still when Satan comes back to tempt them, they will fall and prove that man cannot live in utopia without God. And all of that will come down to the last big lie will be proved wrong. Because we hear it all the time. You know, uh, whether you're from the 60s, the age of Aquarius, when we were going to all enter into this utopian paradise and everything was going to be perfect and you know the governments would all be perfect and everything would be perfect uh, nirvana whatever whatever term you want to use this perfect environment and when we get there everything will be perfect and we'll have no problems and God says well I've already told you that that won't be true Eden, Eden you fell and at the end of the millennial kingdom you will fall not everybody but a large number of people will fall and it'll just be the last proof that even in utopia, human nature will go against God. And so we, we'll see this. And so Jesus is waiting to the end of all, all of that when the enemy is all gone. And then it starts in verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is the beauty of it. When we accept the sacrifice of Jesus, we are sanctified, set aside, made holy, and pure in his sight. Now, it would really be nice if we actually were. But the good news is, from God's perspective, we are. And this is, we talk about this frequently. There are three aspects of salvation. The first part is when God says we're made perfect. Just a divine fiat statement, you are perfect. 
That is the very first statement that happens to us. When we get saved, God says, you are perfect. You know what that means? We're perfect. We may not act perfect. We may not think perfectly. But from God's perspective, he said, outside of time, we are perfect. That is our positional truth with God. We accepted Jesus Christ, and he says, there's my perfect child. And we're looking at each other and say, who is he? He's not talking about me. Is he talking about you? And God says, yes, I'm talking about all of you as my children, my ones that have accepted. Then we get to spend our entire life being sanctified, which means we are becoming what God said we already were. And we all know that's where we're at. We're learning to be closer to God, obeying him more and more with each passing day, each passing year. And as I say, if we look back over our life, we look back and I say, I can't do the same things I used to do. I can't say the same things I used to say. I can't, I can't act the way I used to. Why? Because God is sanctifying us. Then will come the best day ever when God glorifies us. The day we step out of our body in death or we are raptured from this life and pulled out of, our, out of this world into heaven, we will be glorified and we will actually be what God said we were from the beginning, which is how he sees us because he's outside of time. He already sees us as we will be so that he can say that we're perfect. And it's really hard for us to understand that, but God says we're perfect. We need to start accepting that what he says is true. The more we fight against what he says is being true, the harder it is to be perfected. If I just surrender and say, okay, God, help me be what you say I am, then he says, okay, great, we'll, cru we'll crucify you, your flesh and we will make you who I said, you're, said you are. But the more we fight against it, the harder it is to get there. <laughs> but Jesus did that once and for all, and I love this, perfected forever those that are sanctified, made complete in this whole idea. He has made us complete from one offering. And then verse 15, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. Wherefore the Holy Spirit, which also is witness to us after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. So I want to come back to this. He's talk, the writer here has been talking about the new covenant. The covenant that the Jews understood was the covenant of law. If you obey these things, then you will be blessed. If not, you have to offer your sacrifices. If you offer the sacrifices, I will deem that you are, are perfect for another year. And he says there is a new covenant, the new covenant that we abide under because Jesus has come and perfected the, the covenant. And it says, this covenant, I will put my laws into their heart and in their minds, I will write them. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. When he comes in us, he takes out the heart of stone that Jeremiah talks. He puts in a heart of flesh and the Holy Spirit starts changing us from the inside out. He writes God's laws on our heart, changes who we are from the inside. 
and this is the great news that I have seen over the years as I watch people grow. It's not that they're trying to make themselves change. It's just God is changing them. And that's the true change. You know, if I'm trying to change my sin nature with a whip in a chair and trying to keep it, you know, you know, lion tamer, keep that thing stuck in the corner. Don't turn your back on it because as soon as you turn your back on it, it comes charging out with a vengeance. And that's what happens. If we try to tame our sin nature, the moment it gets an opportunity to get loose, it will. And just like that wild animal, it'll attack you and try to take you down. Um, we had that famous lion tamer about 10 years ago, I guess it was now, he forgot, you know, got so familiar with his, you know, wild cat that turned his back and got torn up pretty good. Why? Because he thought that he had tamed his cat. Okay, yeah, whoever it was, Sigfrid and Roy, uh, one of the two of them, whichever one it was that was in the cage. Uh, you know, he forgot for a moment that he had a wild cat in his cage and went to do something else and was attacked. We do that so often with our sin nature. Instead of letting it be crucified according to Galatians 2.20, we stand there and say, all right, down, down, sit, stay. Stay right there <laughs> with our whip. You moved, <laughs> stay. And then we turn our back for a moment and it comes charging at us and over, overcomes us. This is why sin must be crucified. The flesh must be crucified and put to death. A dead thing does not get back up and attack you. Contrary to all the zombie movies out there. <laughs> the dead things stay dead. <laughs> all right? So when the flesh is crucified, it stays dead. Now, that means there's other sinful natures in the flesh that are going to get after us. But each time we let it be crucified, and it's one less thing when it's crucified that I have to deal with. And this is what he's coming down to. He says, I will write on their hearts, I will write on their minds, and their sins and iniquity I will remember no more. What a beautiful statement. Sins and iniquity are not remembered anymore because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He has placed them as far as the east is from the west, as the psalmist tells us, and I like it that he said east from the west and not north from the south. Because you start going far enough north, you can go start, you'll start going south. But you can keep traveling east and west and never start going the other direction. It never ends. Now, you'll end up around the world, <laughs> but you will never start switching directions. And he says, I have separated your sin as far as the east is from the west. I have put them in the deepest sea. He says, I do not remember them. They are gone. Sin has been paid for. Now, this is the beauty of this. this. Sin is no longer the issue. The issue now is, are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ or not? Are you standing before God in, the righteous, in your own self-righteousness or are you standing before him in the righteousness of Christ by accepting the gift? And once we accept that gift, he says, oh, all right, here, I'm going to clothe you. You now have the righteousness of God on you. So when the father looks at us, he says, oh, there's my beautiful son that I love so much. Come on in. Or he goes, what are all those filthy rags? 
You're standing before me in all of that, those rags. How dare you? And sends you away. And this is the key to how we before, stand before God because sin is not the issue with God. Perfection is the issue. Adam and Eve sinned and were no longer perfect when they took and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And they're the classic example of living in utopia not being a problem. They only had one rule. Can you imagine having only one rule and not being able to follow the one rule? Don't eat of that tree. I have thousands of trees that you can eat from. But don't eat that one. And I can almost picture, you know, especially with the sin nature, every day, I wonder what's wrong with that tree. Why can't we eat that? Well, we'll stay away from that. We don't, we'll stay away from that one and we'll go over here. What's wrong with that tree? How can I picture that? Because that's what we do with sin all the time. God, uh, what's wrong with that? You know, how come you said I can't do that? And it's not until we do something that we realize, oh, you know what? God had a real good reason not to do this. Now, why can't I just take drugs and mellow out for the, for the night? Now, and you take it the first time, and it may not be a problem. Some people get totally addicted the first time. Some people just get mellowed out. And think, well, see, God, you lied to me. It wasn't a big deal. And next thing you know, they're totally strung out on them because they're doing it all the time. And this is the problem with sin. Sometimes you can get away with it and seem like you got nothing but benefit out of it the first time, second time, third time, until you're addicted to it. And all sin has an addictive quality to it. may not be physical, but psychologically we get addicted to sin no matter what that sin is. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. They all have that addictive nature to it. A workaholic has the addictive nature of just working all the time because they're getting something from that work. And it takes more and more of it to get the same feeling. You know, the first success was easy. The second one was easier. 20 years in, these successes are a lot harder to get to and you have to work harder to get that success. I was a workaholic. I know what it's like to be stuck into that sin and be willing to sacrifice just about everything to try to get the pleasure from that sin. You know, and it's something that we all, all sin has an addictive nature to it. It's psychologically addictive. Now we do have sins that have a physical addiction to them. And they're even harder to break. Because now you have the psychological and the physical. And so we need to be careful and say, God, I want to sit in yours. And it says, where there is remission of sin. Remission, release from the bondage, the forgiveness, the letting go as if something had never happened. Do you realize that when God gave us remission for sin, he is basically saying, child, I don't even recognize that you have done anything in your life. It is gone. When God forgives and he gives us remission from those sins, you know, I sometimes, you know, and I've said this kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, how many times do we not forgive ourselves? We go to God, God, would you please forgive me of this sin that I, that I committed 30 years ago and I've been praying every day for forgiveness? And I can almost picture God scratching his head. I go, I wonder what they're talking about. 
What sin are they talking about? I don't remember anything. And you're probably patting us on the head. Okay, you know, would you please just forgive yourself and let's move on to the next, next area of your life? You know, we, we get to confuse God because he goes, I don't, I have no clue what they're talking about. You know, I have forgiven it. It's under the blood. I, you know, and I can almost picture, he's, well, yeah, they're talking about one of those things we put under the blood, aren't they? Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, but he's up there in heaven going, I wish they would just get over it and move on. I've been doing that for a long time. I won't do that. Yeah. Just move on to the next, next part of their life. And you know, a lot of this is that we have to begin to really accept what God says. You know, there's so many times when we go, God, I really believe you. And then we start really trying to understand what it is that, we're, that he said about us and go, well, maybe I don't believe as much as I thought I did. You know, and this is one of those things. How can you have a God that knows everything and yet forgets our sin? Because by divine fiat, he said, I have forgotten. It's under the blood. I know it no more. It has been forgiven placed under the blood, separated as far as the east is from the west, and I don't know it anymore. Because he says that he doesn't know it. And yet he knows all things. So, but he just has a divine statement that says, once it's under the blood, I have forgotten it. We need to be able to get to that place where we just say, God, you've forgotten it, I'm going to forget it. And the more we learn to do it with ourselves, the more we can do it with other people, because that's the other place. How many times have people been upset with somebody and will not release that person? Will not forgive that person? The sad thing about it is, after a while, the only one that's hurting is you. That person's long past your, your being upset with them. Yeah. There have been many times where people have gone up, well, I, find, I forgive you. For what? For what you did 28 years ago. What did I do? You don't know? I've been nursing this thing for 28 years and you don't know what you, what you did to me? And that usually is what happens. Now maybe they'll be gracious and say, okay, I accept, even though they have no idea what you're talking about. And I think that's what God does when we go up there and ask him for forgiveness for something that happened long, long ago. He goes, okay, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, but yes, I forgive you. <laughs> I forgave you a long time ago, but, you know, yes, I, yes, I forgive you. And here it says, for where remission of sin is, there is no more offering for sin. Where the sin has been released and forgotten, there's no need for sin again. There's no need for the sin offering. And this is the beauty of it. God says, we are forgiven. The blood has been shed. He says, I don't need any more offerings because I've covered it with the blood of Christ. And the good news for us, it's all the sins that we have done. Not just one or two, but all the sins we have done are covered by the blood and treated as if we had never committed the crime. Now, legally, this is the way it's supposed to be. If somebody is uh, found not guilty of their crime or insufficient evidence, they are to be treated as if they are not a criminal. Even if they are guilty, they're still treated, supposedly, as if they had not committed the crime because they were found not guilty. 
And this is what God says. You aren't guilty. Matter of fact, I have no clue what you're talking about. I gave you remission. You never, you never did the crime. Because I put it on Jesus. Your crime went on my son who died on the cross and took all the punishment for your sin. And you're not guilty anymore because he took the penalty. The beauty of the forgiveness. We need to fully start understanding the power of forgiveness. Because we don't usually understand it. We don't usually take it into full view. We, it is because it is so far beyond anything that we can comprehend. We can't comprehend that a God who's greater than us can forgive what we can't forgive. Which is foolishness in, in and of itself. Because I would say if, God, if you really believe that God can, has forgiven you, then we need to believe that he's forgiven us. And act like he's forgiven us. And that is hard sometimes. But he says, there's no more offering for sin because it is been remitted. Treat it as if it does not exist. It never happened. Now, that is hard even for us. We go, God, I just sinned yesterday. And God says, what sin are you talking about? It's covered. And we're going, I know that I sinned. But he's going, but he's saying, I've covered it. It's covered. It's remitted. It's passed. It's paid for. Matter of fact, it's paid for the soul girl that you never even committed it, as far as I'm concerned. And this is the whole thing that he's bringing out of here. And there's no more offering. And then he says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, he's talking to the Jewish people. And when he says holiest, what they know is he's talking about the holy of holies, where the mercy seat is, and God in their mentality, sits on the mercy seat between the cherubim, seated upon the law in the, in the chest with the mercy seat between him and the, and, the, and the law. And this writer is saying, because of the blood of Christ, we, everybody, not just the high priest, can go into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. Before Jesus' sacrifice, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And he hoped that he had confessed all of his sins and the blood of that uh, animal that he sacrificed for his sins was going to cover him when he stood in front of the Holy of Holies. And they, would wear, they had bells around the fringe of their garment and they would stay moving so people would hear the bells. And it said in Josephus that they wore a rope around their ankle just in case the bell stopped ringing, that they could pull the body out. And I've not been able to find proof. I've heard pastors say that, you know, that they found some place where five people in all the, all the years of the temple had to be pulled out of the Holy of Holies, but I have never been able to find a historical record about it. Uh, but the ones that have said it are all under one teacher, and so their teacher said it, and they've taught it. And I have not been able to find a record of it. Would it surprise me if anybody had died in the Holy of Holies? No. But I have not been able to find any historical records. If, I, if anybody finds it, let me know, because I want to find, you know, not just somebody saying it, but getting into a true historical record. Because I would love to be able to say this many people died and they got pulled out. I think God's grace and mercy would have allowed them, as long as they followed their steps and they offered the sacrifice that God would have said, 
All right, you're doing your job. You, may, you might have missed four or five sins in your entire year, but I'm going to give you grace and mercy because you're standing in for the whole people. And, and you've shed the blood, and I, I, I'm a God of mercy and grace, and I'm not going to take your life just because. But all of this comes down to the remission of sin, and we have boldness, fearless com- confidence to come into the very presence of God. Now, we take that for granted as Christians because we've been taught this all of our time. Do you realize that Christians are the only religion that says that you can come before the God that you're worshiping with confidence and boldness and not dread and fear that you're going to be killed? And most of them say you can't come before God, period. You know, if you're if you're in uh, following the ways in in India, you go before the god of war. Nobody wants to go before the god of war. You know, you did not want to stand before the god of war. You, know, you did not want to st- stand before the god of the underworld. Yeah, you, know, you might have wanted to stand before the god of love, but <laughs> but that's not usually the one that you stood before. All of these things come down to we have the confidence to go before God into his presence and we take it for granted. The cost of that is the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood shed on the cross, presented to the Father at the mercy seat, allows us to come into the very presence of God dressed in the righteousness of Christ and present our case to our Father who loves us because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What a beautiful statement that we have that we're able to go boldly to his throne and talk to the God of the universe. Nobody greater, nobody's ever going to take him down and we get to go up into him and as we're told in other books, we're able to call him Abba. And Abba is the Aramaic word for basically for daddy. All right, it's the idea of going to your dad, and most of us guys don't. You call our you know fathers daddy, but we call him dad, or you know something you know just as intimate, but not quite. You know, usually it's the girl daddy. <laughs> but we get to have that intimate conversation with him. This is, we are so close that I can use an intimate conversation with you an intimate title with you I'm not having to say oh wonderful marvelous creator of the universe uh, you know all all awe-inspiring you know, I don't have to go through all of that I get to actually go before him and say father daddy dad whatever term you whatever term you you use for your your father's in, in an intimate moment and come before him in boldness. We don't want to take that for granted that we have that kind of closeness with him. Now, this is something we see sometimes with uh, leaders who have got a good family life. And they will take a phone call from their children at any moment, no matter what they're doing, and saying, okay, yes, this business is important, but you know who's really important? My child, my wife. Now, they can talk to me whenever they need to talk to me. Uh, we have the picture of JFK with his son under the desk at uh, 
at the Oval Office, you know, it's just, he was so, this is my son. He, my son has access to me. You all have to get permission and, and schedule. My son has permission to be here, no matter what. And, you know, that's the kind of relationship we have with God. The God of the universe says, you can come in and see me whenever you want. Come bother me no, at any time. It doesn't matter. Not that we will ever be bothering him, but you get the point, you know, picture of what I'm saying. Just come on in. I'm never too busy for my children. And this is what we're being told here. And, you know, and it says, by a new and living way, he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. This new, recently made way, a living way, Zoe life, true spiritual life. We have access to Jesus, and it says, through the veil. And this veil he's saying is Jesus's is Jesus's flesh. And it's referring to the veil that separated the holy place and the holy of holies. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, that in and of itself was a miracle. Because if we tore everything as a human being, we'd tear it from the bottom and keep stretching it and tore it from the t- to the top. Who, who tore that, that veil? the Father himself, and said, there is no more separation to the mercy seat. Now, I've read that that veil was seven inches thick in the temple. It was not accidentally torn in half. You don't tear a seven-inch thick piece of uh, fabric or, or carpet or whatever you want to call, call with that veil. And God tore it when Jesus paid the debt. He took the sin upon himself and died for our sins so that the Father said, now there is no more separation. Just as it was in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the night, God walked with Adam and Eve and talked with them. What kind of conversation must that have been? You know, let me tell you all the stuff that I know God says as he's teaching Adam and Eve all about things that we probably never understood. You know, and he's saying, here is knowledge that I'm going to give you. And every night they were able to walk with him and talk with him and be able to be taught by God. And then sin separated us. Now, God still talked with Adam and Eve after that, but not as intimately, not as, as closely. Abel had a conversation with God. Cain was, had conversations with God. We see all kinds of conversations. The further we've gotten away from God, the more sin has separated people, the less conversation God has with this, with this world. And we need to get back to where we have conversation with God. We hear his voice. We're listening to him. You know, that we hear by faith his voice and act upon his word. Because he's wanting to have that conversation with us. Jesus died so that we could be intimately related to him again. And we need to be able to understand that we have that 
access to God because of the sacrifice. Do we truly believe that we have that kind of access with God? To the most part, no. And do we fully understand what it means to have that kind of access with God? I don't think so. I don't even think I do. And I thought about it a lot. And I don't think I fully understand what it means to have that kind of access to God. Because if we did, how would our life be totally changed? God, I just want to crawl up in your lap and talk to you for a little while. I don't have anything to ask you for right now. I just want to be with you. My prayer life would be different. God, just, just let's have a talk today for a little bit. You tell me what you want me to do. You, you share with me. God, I have, no, I have no request for you at this moment. I just, want, I just want to tell you that I love you. How often is that part of our prayer life? To just go before God and say, God, you're so wonderful. I love being around you. and I just like being with you. God, I just want to look at your face. I just want to look at you today. And if you remember back in whatever day you were eagerly in love with your spouse or anything, and all you wanted to do was be with them, you didn't even necessarily want to talk. You didn't necessarily even want to do anything. You just wanted to be with them. Just be there with them. That is the relationship that God wants with us. God, I just want to be in your presence. I want to just feel your, your hand in my hand, your, your arm around my shoulder. No, nothing, nothing more. Just be here with me, showing me that you care. And I just want to be here. I just want to have my hand in your hand and just, just stand by your side, walk by your side, sit with you. Talk once in a while. Share, share the secrets of my life. Do we really have that kind of love for him? You know, he calls Jesus in the scriptures the darling of heaven. That's how special he is. We are wearing the righteousness of Christ. How does God look at us? What does he see? He sees the darling of heaven when he looks at us. I think he has a much greater love for us than we even give him credit for. We speak about, for God so loved the world that he gave. For God loved us that he does this. God, And we talk about his love all the time. But do we truly, fully understand the scope of his love? I'm going to say we don't. I say this so frequently. No matter what you think you know about God, because he is infinite, you don't know much about him. You know, how strong is your God? Well, my God is the one that runs the universe. He created everything. I'm going, great. What about the stuff that's not of the universe? Does he control all of that? Uh, well, yes. Oh, well, your God just got a little bit bigger. You know, how much power does he have? Does he have control over? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about this? Uh, well, I never thought about that. How much does God know? You know? One of the questions I have, we talk about God being everywhere present. I talk about him being every time present. I talk about him being in every dimension present at the same moment. Is your God that big? 
And I don't know what's beyond dimensions, but you know what? He fills those as well. Whatever's out there beyond the dimensions that we know of, and we don't know very many, he's got over those. And if there's something beyond dimensions, he's got over those. And he fills all of that. How big is your God? How strong is your God? My God gets bigger and bigger, stronger and stronger the more I think about how big and how strong he is. And the more science starts catching up, the more I start realizing how big he is and I haven't even com contemplated how big he is. Because science keeps telling me he's bigger, that this world is bigger than we think it is. And the more that they tell me, the more I realize that my God is big. He filled that before we discovered it. He was already there, filling it. He was already present in all of that for all of whatever their time is. You know, how big is your God? You're still too small. How powerful is it? You're still too weak. How all-knowing is it? You still don't even know the beginning of what he knows because he is so infinite. And as I jokingly say, you know, once we've been in with him for eternity, and we think we know everything that he knows, he'll just create more stuff for us to get to know about him. Because he'll say, oh, you don't even know me yet because I'm infinite, you're still finite. Because you're still a created being. Even though you've been around now for, you know, 20 gazillion years, <laughs> you know, you still are just a, just a beginner. Because we had a beginning. He had no beginning. He went that far the other direction before we were even a thought. You know, you know, I, I knew you long before you even thought about being, being around. And I knew you. And I knew all this information. How big is our God? How strong is he? And we have the ability to go into his presence. The God of the universe running everything Listening to every prayer of every single person still has time to inti intimately interact with us at the same time. This is one of the things that I thought was very interesting when I was reading in the Left Behind series and I got to the Last Judgment. And their picture of the Last Judgment was God working in front, having all the lost people in front of him and dealing with them all at the same time in the trial with millions of people, maybe billions of people in front of him, all of them at the same moment, communicating with him, being shown that they were guilty. That changes how fast the white throne judgment will last. Now, if he had to take each one of those billions of people one at a time, that would be a long trial. But if he could deal, and he can because he's God, he deals with all of them at one moment, couple hours maybe if that long and then he condemns them to hell for eternity because they're guilty and they know they're guilty because he was communicated one-on-one -on -one with them all at the same time and at the same time he's communicating with us over in the other box saying I love you you guys are so special aren't you glad you that you are under the blood of Christ and you are you that you're the bride of Christ and you get to go into heaven in just a few minutes and spend eternity in heaven with me while these ones go to, go to hell as he's talking with them and he's talking with us. At the same moment, how powerful is our God? How big is our God? We don't ever really truly 
contemplate the full scope of them because no matter what we think, we're still too small. And there are a handful of people that are really smart. They've got a really big God, a really strong God. I don't care if it's an Einstein out there who's able to come up with the most important information. It's still too small, too incomplete to be God because he is infinitely greater than the creation. And what a beauty we have with this. God forgives our sins completely. Completely. What a beautiful statement that he's bringing in here. And he says all of this that he is able to forgive because of the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood allows for forgiveness. I love what God does and how much he loves us, how much he cares for us. He loved us. First John tells us, for he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. We can't even understand true love without God. When biblical counseling works with marriages, the first thing we want to make sure is, are those people truly saved and understand the love of God? Because if they don't understand the love of God, they cannot love their spouse correctly. They might really like their spouse and they might be able to put up with their spouse, but they don't really truly know love until they have been loved. And this is important. Once we have received true love, now we can show love to other people. And you know, it's hard for people to accept love when they have never experienced love. And what the world calls love is really not true love. It's infatuation. It's what can I get from this person? How does this person make me feel? God loves us without condition. He just says, I love you. Doesn't matter whether you love God back, he still loves you. Doesn't matter whether you're nice to him, he still loves you. It doesn't matter whether he gets anything from you, he still loves you. That is not the kind of love we have. Because we'll say things like, well, how long am I supposed to put up with not being having love returned to me? How long can I keep doing this without, without seeing anything back? And you look to God and says, God says, I've been doing it for 6,000 years. And most of, the, most of humanity doesn't love me back. Billions and billions have not loved me and are going to go to hell because they did not love me back. But I still loved them. We have to start understanding things from God's perspective. It's not easy, but the closer we get to it, the more we can can understand who he is and we'll never understand him fully but the closer we get to them the more we can learn love the more we can learn forgiveness the more we can learn to be kind to others and start showing it to others not perfectly but you know I'm not sure that people would be able to understand it if they had perfect love shown to them I don't think they would understand it any they didn't when Jesus showed it to them they put him on the cross yeah, so it might be good that we don't have the perfect love <laughs> because we'd end up on a cross just as he did. But all of this in here is 
Jesus has died for the new covenant so that sins could be forgiven, that it is a brand new way of living that we have before him as we follow into the kingdom. A perfect relationship with a perfect God, with imperfect people, and falling short, but he lives in us. And every once in a while, the perfect God peeks out of the imperfect person and people get to see God in us. For just a minute, moment, second, whatever it might be, maybe, maybe if we're really good and really, really following it, maybe for four or five minutes, people can see God in us and say, there's something I want. They have something that I want they have a peace that passes understanding. They have a love that I don't understand. They're able to forgive and I don't understand that. They have something that I want. As we get to let God shine out of us, every once in a while, he'll shine out and draw people to Christ. Lord, we just thank you for your love, your care. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to believe that you are who you say you are and that you love us and that you have forgiven. And when you forgive, you do not bring it back to remembrance. And we thank you for that and ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.